and really my life has has changed very little in a way, which is um, is a great thing because I I didn't really want it to before I came out, and I, um, and it hasn't really thereafter. I mean, I'm I'm much happier, I feel much freer. And welcome to episode 29 of the Outfield Podcast. I apologize for if I sound a little discombobulated recording this. I'm recording this right after watching the dumbest hockey game I have ever seen. Panther 7, Leaf 6 in overtime. I'm trying to catch my thoughts from that. And I really want to be on Twitter to look at the Leafs fans. But I can't do that because I'm doing something far more important on this episode of the show today. The guest is somebody I've wanted to have on this show for more than a couple of years. He was one of the first people I thought of when I decided I was going to do a podcast on out people in sports. Uh, he is a friend of mine. I've gotten a chance to talk with him over the last few years. He's amazing. You might not know his story because you probably don't follow Australian sports, but I encourage you to try because it's worth your time. He's a friend of mine from ABC radio, not the ABC in America, different one, Corbin Middlemas. Corbin, I am so happy. I finally get to have you on the show. How are you doing my friend? Matt, I appreciate you having me. I know we've tried to take this up a couple of times and it's nice that uh, yeah, we're able to, to do it now. So um, yeah, appreciate you, you having me on and understand the feeling. It doesn't matter sort of what sporting competition anywhere uh, on the back of some sort of wild result, but uh, I'll, I, I appreciate your professionalism to be able to sort of hold the meeting and, uh, and still do this after, after such a result. I'm doing my best because the Panthers have just done their second four goal comeback to win a game in four days after I spent most of the time yelling and screaming about how that's not sustainable. Anyway, that's for another podcast I do called why hockey. If you want to listen to that, I will yell about that and scream about that more, but I've wanted Corbin on because he is like me, a broadcaster in the wonderful world of sports media. He is in Australia, as I said, and he came out a couple weeks before I did in 2018. And I saw his story and Anybody who comes out in sports media is somebody who I immensely respect. I don't know where, you know, it doesn't matter where it is or what sports you follow. And we've gotten to know each other just through Twitter DMs. Obviously, I couldn't travel to Australia if I wanted to because they wouldn't let me in. But I want everybody to know a little bit about you before we get into more than nitty gritty. So tell everyone about you if they don't know who you are yet. And I hope they'll have a good sense of you by the end of the show. Jeez, I'll, I'll do my best, but essentially I'm a sports broadcaster. I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, which is on the west coast of the country. The way that Australia is set up for people that aren't aware, essentially all a majority of the major cities are on the east coast of the country and Perth is uh, the capital of, of WA on the west coast and it's um, the most isolated city in the world. So um, it's about a two and a half hour flight from the next major capital city in the country. So I, I grew up there went to school there. My folks are from there um, and all my, my family and friends. And then when I got to the age of about uh, 19, I was lucky enough to, to get a break with the ABC. Again, working in Perth, the ABC is the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which is a uh, which is the, the national broadcaster in, uh, in, in Australia. So um, we do uh, sort of various... Um, we do various uh, sports there. I mean, from everything from Olympic competition to... Um, yeah, local football, local cricket, um, various football codes, basketball, um, a whole lot of different sports for, for radio and, and every now and then some, some television sports, although less of that in recent times. Um, and then uh, basically in, in when I was 24, I got the opportunity to move to the East Coast uh, and went to Brisbane 
spent one year there, which is the capital of Queensland, moved states again a year after that to, to New South Wales, spent two years there in Sydney, which uh, I'm sure a lot of your, your audience will be familiar with Sydney and, and now I reside in Melbourne, which is where I always wanted to be. So I lived in um, four different cities in the space of about five years, I think. So um, that was a that was a pretty fun time. And now my third year in uh, in Melbourne, which is um, what people in Victoria love to refer to as the sporting capital of the world. It's certainly the uh, the sporting capital of Australia, at least uh, self-proclaimed and the home of uh, Australian rules sporty, which is a large part of what we do for, for seven months of the year or so. I am going to spend a lot of time talking about footy at another point. If you remember, almost a year and a half ago, I had a footy guest on because, as I said at the time, life was really terrible during the depths of the pandemic. So when you couldn't get to sleep and there weren't any sports on, Aussie Rules football was on. So I watched it at two in the morning. And uh, for obvious reasons, you can see why I got interested in that. But we'll, we'll get all that together. And by the way, four cities in five years is a very common sports broadcaster experience up here, too. Many, many broadcasters in the four cities in five years, although you went to big cities. I mean, have you ever heard of Moline, Illinois? I'm just kidding. Uh, well, not <laughs> no mean to disrespect you, Moline. I had to go to Moline once a uh, pit stop to do a college football game in Iowa City, which was like two hours away. But again, people don't want to hear about that. Uh, and I wanted to have you on, obviously, because when you came out, there were obviously there more broadcasters have come out since. But. I think for me, in learning about you and learning a little bit about the world of Australian sports, it has become very apparent that the problems that we see in sports with our community, the country's borders are not any impediment to stopping them, as in the problems exist everywhere. And I can read stories about Aussie rules football. I can read stories about rugby. I can read stories about cricket. And they sound exactly the same as anything I would read on sports in this country. And that's one of the things that I learned pretty quickly following you. And what I want to talk with you about a lot is your experiences in it. And to, I don't want to say like, just say complain everything's bad because it's not. Because we've seen incredible progress, obviously, in three and a half years. A lot's changed. But for you, I want you to start with how you feel now that you've been out for an extended period of time feel doing your work and being a part of a sporting culture that still has many of the same problems, although it has improved in recent years? Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel, I feel very comfortable in myself and in what I do. Um, I'm, I'm very lucky that I work for a pretty progressive organization. I think the people that I work alongside um, you know, have been very accepting. I think that they were beforehand and that probably helped make um, make the decision to sort of come out publicly a little easier that I kind of knew that I was in a, in a soft landing spot in that sense. I guess the, the one thing that I would say is, is I'm probably not privy to some of those sort of old school conversations that perhaps I once was. So before I came out publicly, um, every now and then you'd overhear hear some language that, you know, you wouldn't expect to hear in a, in a civilized conversation in, you know, in, in the days in which we live nowadays. But um, yeah, I, I don't doubt that those conversations still happen. It's just I'm no longer part of them. So perhaps people are sort of a little, um, a little wiser when, uh, when I'm sort of there, obviously, um, knowing my story and, um, yeah, and, and my sexual orientation. But, um, yeah, I, I think over, I, I'm, very, I'm lucky in the sense that the, the station and the network that I work for, I, I don't hear too much of it nowadays. Sure, every now and then there, there is that type of conversation and there's not that many people that, um, particularly as, as sort of gay men that identify that way in the sports media. So, um, yeah, you're, you're certainly in, a, in an overwhelming minority um, in the industry in which we work on, uh, work in, particularly um, 
sort of public facing uh, as that front. There are there are sort of um, gay men behind the scenes, and um, yes, yeah, certainly is uh, probably more than there was when when I was a kid and growing up, for example. But um, yeah, it is it is um, that's probably the best way I guess that that I can describe it in terms of my experience. Out of curiosity, because I don't keep track of it, obviously in Australia, I do somewhat up here, but even then I lose track at times. How many out broadcasters in sports are there in Australia that you know of? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Is it um, just you? Uh, no, no, I think there'd be there'd be a handful there'd be a handful across the board. Um, and then again, I, I'm not so sure whether they're sort of publicly out or whether they're it's just kind of known behind the scenes that they are out. So I don't want to sort of start dropping names, but um, yeah, that, that would be. Uh, I think sort of off the top of my head, maybe. Yeah, five or six, but uh, in sort of the, the media landscape more broadly. But in terms of the sporting landscape, um, yeah, there's there's not too many, particularly as uh, as play by play commentators. <laughs> I think that's um, that's I think for sure. We're the, we're the last we're the last bit. ones to get in on the act. I think. You know, I, I, I said <laughs> it on the la- I said it on the last show when I was interviewing a, a hockey announcer that came out. I said this is probably yeah. the peak for me. Like I can't think of anyone more perfect for this show than an out hockey announcer. You're close. I have to, I have to admit. And it's, it's just, it's just how it is. You know, we, we gravitate naturally to people who share our experiences. I try not to do this too often on this show. I want to bring in more broad scopes of life in sports, but sometimes when you're in a bit of a rut, you got to go back to what you know, you got to play the hits. We got to play Freebird sometimes, or this podcast's equivalent of Freebird. Uh, I want you to talk a little bit about just you growing up and getting interested in sports. I mean, obviously Australia is a major sports country, of course, uh, different mm-hmm. sports, but a major sports country. And then growing up and deciding you wanted to go down this path into this lovely industry of sports media. Yeah. I, I love um, us sports and, um, and the way that, uh, and we, we love our American sports down here. And as I've got older, I've uh, been lucky enough to travel to the US a bunch of times. So I, I know enough of the American sports landscape. So I'll do my best to try and translate it back to there for you as well as, as best I can. But by the um, way, I just want to say this first, first and foremost, he is a Giants yes. fan. So please lay off. And we're not talking the GWS Giants. We're talking the New York Giants. So please lay off of him. If you're listening and you're screaming into your headphones, it's okay. Yeah. Uh, that's right. That's right. The Giants and the Yankees and the Nets, I think, are my sort of three teams at the moment. But uh, there hasn't been too many titles in any of those places in uh, any recent times, that's for sure. Um, but essentially, I grew up playing um, Aussie rules footy, which is um, probably our, our big winter sport. There's, we have two football codes here with, uh, with rugby league and what we call the northern states, so in New South Wales and Queensland. And in the southern states, which is sort of Victoria, WA, New South Wales, Tasmania. Oh, sorry, WA, uh, South Australia, Victoria. Tasmania uh, it's it's very much sort of Aussie rules centric so that's kind of the, the heartland of, of Australian rules and growing up in WA that's what I did a lot in the winter time and in the summertime I, I played cricket which I, I know your listeners will be familiar with the sport of cricket even though it's, it's not that big in the US um, but essentially is, is very much our national pastime the same way that uh, the baseball has been for a, for a long period in the US so um, it was really cricket in the summertime Aussie rules in the in the winter I played a bit of basketball, so I always sort of loved my sport and was um, and played that sort of in between and a lot of midweek uh, competition. And then essentially just got to an age when it was about 14, 15, and my old man was pretty instrumental in all of this. He, he sort of worked out pretty quick that um, I wasn't going to make it as a professional sport, as a professional athlete, as, the, as is the path for a lot of broadcasters, um, and essentially encouraged me to uh, to get down to my local community station. So we had a, a family friend of ours who was a was a um, race caller used to call the or still does call the greyhounds in 
in WA. So I went and checked out a radio studio for the first time and he pointed us in, our, in the direction of our, uh, our local community station. And um, essentially my old man ran into him and uh, he was a, a good man by the name of Colin Minson, who sadly passed away recently. And he said, look, come down to the station on Saturday. And I would have still been in, in uh, high school at the time and um, literally rolled up on a Saturday afternoon. And within an hour, I was on air reading cricket scores on top of the, on top of the clock and basically spent every sort of weekend there for the next three years. Certainly um, just honing my craft and um, getting the opportunity down the track to eventually call some, some play-by-play sport. Uh, and from there, the fact that I had you know so many flying hours up by the time I was I was nineteen, I was I was in the position to um, to get a job when um, yeah when the ABC came came knocking. So um, yeah, lucky enough, I was I was in a position to be able to to be ready to go. So um, I was I was I was fortunate that the opportunities came up at the right time, and and also was um, had already sort of put in a, a lot of flying hours that I guess said yeah put me in a position that um, I was someone that they were they were interested in. So. Um, as you know, in this industry, they're always sort of you always need a little bit of luck along the way, and and I certainly got that. But um, yeah, my dad was probably a, a big influence in sort of pointing me in the right direction and making sure from that age of you know 14, 15, 16, I, I knew what I wanted to be doing and and to be doing something about it. Uh, if if I didn't have any luck in this industry, well, I have bad luck. But that's I, I butchered the phrase there, but that's not the point. And also, a couple other things I want to get in. First of all, greyhound racing, yes. not particularly legal many places in the U.S. I think the last place was Florida and I don't think it's legal there anymore. I don't even think it's legal in Britain anymore, but you know what, whatever gets you in, that's fine. And, and also one thing I love about hearing broadcasters tell their stories from particularly England. And also I guess in Australia too, you're 14, 15 and you're going down to community radio like that, that comparable experience didn't really exist. Like the first thing I did was I started writing for school newspaper, they had already scrapped the broadcasting yeah. by that point because of the uh, old financial crisis. But yeah. I find that so interesting that you could get your start a lot early. I mean, now with YouTube and TikTok and all this, you could start whenever yeah. you want. But you know, I find that always very interesting that how in those countries, I guess this, what is it? Is it the tradition? Is it just that there's more of this and they're willing to take a shot with kids in this instance? What do, yeah. you, what do you think with that? I actually think if anything, it's, it's just, it's a bit old school. Like I, I, I was thinking about this recently and I mentioned Colin Minson, who was, um, you know, the, 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 really the founding chairman of, of Sport FM as a station. And he gave me so many great opportunities to, to broadcast live sport and, and he passed away recently. And so the station um, that I got my start in is pr- probably going through this, this, um, you know, new era, I guess, as such as, you know, what's the station going to look like going forward, who's going to take it over and, and what will it be for the next decade? And, you're right about sort of the advent of sort of new media. So nowadays, if you want to broadcast live sport, well, you can grab a tape recorder, you can go sit in the back of the stand somewhere and you can learn to practice play by play. You can push it online. You can cut it up and put it as like you said, into a TikTok or um, onto Twitter or whatever it may be, upload something to the podcast. You can yell on Twitch for two hours. Yeah. There's basically, there's all these things that you can do yourself. You don't need the local community station anymore. Like you once did. So I think if if anything, it probably took us a little while to catch up, and um, I, I desperately hope that the station sort of finds its way and finds an avenue, whether that's sort of in um, you know online as a streaming service or whatever it may be, because it was such a great uh, platform. Like you said, you know who who gets the opportunity in broadcast form to to like I was going to to year eleven and twelve during the week, and you know you'd be sitting in in class on a Friday afternoon, and I'll be writing out my footy teams ready to to call a game on community radio on the Saturday. Like that's that was insane. That's a it's a great um, 
you know, opportunity to be able to, to have that and, and a platform to be able to do it. So I hope that that, I really hope that that exists for the next kids that, that come through and, um, and are able to, to use the station in the same way. So um, I think that unfortunately for a lot of sort of local radio stations, I think they're probably, they're finding um, the same battle at the moment and, and same with newspapers and things. And, you know, they, they sort of old school um, media as to, you know, can they still make money out of it the same way that they once did? So I, I think that'll be the big challenge for them going forward. Whereas perhaps in the, in the U S you guys are a little bit ahead of that. Um, I think what, you know, we, we often see it here with a lot of that stuff that it, it generally follows a lead from either from the UK or from the U S and whichever sort of influence you, you follow. But I think eventually, um, yeah, Australian life sort of follows, follows one or the other. I mean, you get pulled in two different directions. You can pick which one you think is better or worse. I'm not here to say which is better or worse. And by the way, I, I will say, yeah, a lot of Americans are going to listen to this, but I also tend to think that a lot of Australians are going to listen to this too. I bet your friends are going to listen to this. And I bet a bunch of people <laughs> who are in that in their world, they're going to be like, why are you explaining this to me? I already know all of this. It's, it's, it's okay that you're explaining this because a lot of dumb Americans are going to listen to this. And I too am a dumb American. But remember, this podcast is available worldwide. And that means there will be some Australians that listen to it. So we, we don't want to, I don't want to patronize them because I feel like, you know, Americans, eh, we patronize everybody by showing up and acting like idiots. I feel bad. Yeah. Oh, but I think the Australians find the humor enough trying to explain really simple everyday things to and, uh, and try to get it across. So hopefully they get a kick out of that as well. I, I hope they do. Uh, and now as for your your experience of your sexuality, I don't know what it was like in Australia. You're only a couple of years older than me, but I don't know what it was like in the 2000s in Australia. I can't imagine it was much better than the 2000s in the US when it comes to this. So what about your own personal journey? And I always ask this question because for people like us who find ourselves in the world of sports and find ourselves going through a time where we're starting to understand that we're different, the two things either don't match up or you used one to kind of quote unquote bury the other. So what was it like for you in going through that journey as somebody who was also going through a journey of getting into sports and sports media? Yeah, probably the latter, to be honest. Um, I think that I was lucky enough that I was really young in the industry. And so it, it probably, it was probably a mask in a way to kind of be like, oh, look, he's, he's just really committed to his career right now. He's really driven. That's why, you know, we don't see him sort of doing stuff that um, a lot of other, you know, 21, 22, 23 year old, uh, guys are out there doing um, we would often or we still do sort of work a lot of weekends obviously because that's when the, the sport is so you're generally not out and about at a, at a club on a Friday or Saturday night like a lot of your friends would be so um, it, it was it was you know part of it that I was um, I was putting off but I, I knew that there was always going to be a conflict there at some point that you know the way that I, I never I was lucky in the sense that I never had I never had any wrestle internally as to, oh, is, is that who I am or am I more this way? It wasn't really a process that I had to work through in that sense. I think from, you know, the earliest stage that you knew you were attracted to someone, I, I knew that I was gay. That was that was something that was never a conf was never a battle for me internally in, in that sense. I just knew that in what I wanted to do that, yeah, it was there was going to be some kind of conflict there and that I'd have to work my way through it. Um, I think, the, I mean, the, the group of friends that I always had, I mean, I'm um, in a way I... I'm very heteronormative in, in the way that I go about things. I'm a, um, you know, I love my sports. I love going to the pub, having a few beers, um, you know, hanging out with uh, all, like all my mates at school were very much the jocks, um, you know, people that are in and around sport. And uh, I think the environment, whether it's here or in the US or anywhere else around the, um, the sporting world, it is a very sort of heteronormative 
environment. So um, I, I knew that was going to be a problem. And yet at the same time, I felt like I chose my friends really carefully. So, um, and I'm sure a lot of gay people have, you know, a very similar experience that, you know, if you're hanging around people, whether it may be in school or at footy clubs or cricket clubs or whatever it may be, that, you know, the people that are using language that is offensive or homophobic, you know, generally you, you try to steer away from them. And I, I, I tried to sort of surround myself with a group of, you know, open-minded people and, and people that would be really understanding knowing that, look, at some point in the future when I'm comfortable, I've got to tell them that I'm gay. And I don't want that to be, um, you know, a, a hostile experience or one that's going to, to lead to a, a loss of the friendship. So uh, I felt like, you know, when it finally got to a point that I was ready to start telling people, there wasn't too many people that I, uh, that I had to tell um, from my friendship circle where I thought, oh, geez, I, I could lose the friendship as a result of this. And I think that's sort of where the, the fear comes from is, um, you know, for gay people for a, a long period of time, whether it's been their work or their friendships um, or their family, they, they feel like that, you know, that the coming out experience means that, that they're going to lose um, parts of their life that are, are really important to them. So um, I was very lucky that I, I knew my employer was, was going to be understand, uh, was going to understand um, I have a very loving family, although I, I have a small family where it's, um, you know, we, we don't have, um, you know, too many sort of cousins or aunties or uncles or anything like that. So it's it's not a large network. And um, I knew my friends were, were very understanding. So I, I didn't have that same fear, which, um, you know, and even with all those things combined, Matt, it took me until what I was in my mid to late 20s to actually come out. So um, I, I can completely understand why for people that perhaps don't have that kind of network around them, why, why it sometimes take, takes people a lot longer. Took me until I was 25. I mean, the process is different for everybody. And I'm going to fall on a live grenade here when I, when I start talking about the uh, things you mentioned, uh, the being a, a straight passing guy. And I hate that phrase, but it's the best phrase to use in this situation. And I mean, that's just in some ways, if you're involved in sports as deeply as you are, either it is a mask, not, not, not MASC, MASK for, you know, your feelings because it allows you to fit in and otherwise nobody asks and nobody questions because those questions when you're too young, they can be extremely damaging and they can make you question these things. And the culture around sports and the culture around how the general population and general society looked at gay people when we were, when you were in high school, the Australian equivalent of that. And when I was in high school, it's not the way we look at it now. And for that reason, there is therefore going to be a group of people that come out there that would be straight passing in air quotes. And it's not a part of your personality, even now in a different world that we live in that you necessarily turn off or turn on. And I don't think personality equals sexuality, whatever it may be yeah. that you are and whatever you're interested in, it's in your genetic code. You were gonna be gay no matter what, you were gonna be queer no matter what, but how you act and how your personality is influenced by what's around you, like that can still change. And I'm trying to find the best way to put it without again no, stepping I'm, on a live grenade. Yeah. It's not you, it's other I'm, people because this topic gets dicey quick with certain people. Yeah. And I just think that it's, it's one of those things where in the end, your sexuality is your sexuality and your personality, I don't think it's going to change that. And that's, that's one of the things that, you know, I feel yeah. is like I don't come off, you know, in the way that, people would perceive a stereotypical queer person, bisexual, otherwise neither do you. And a lot of us fall into that. 
because there's a wide spectrum of queer people out there. And I think that that's something that is still not very well represented in sports. It's a little bit more well represented in the rest of the world. But even then, I still think that it's not as well represented as it could be. And I'm not saying people like me should feel excluded. I don't in any way. But it's, it's such a complicated topic that particularly for people like us in the world of sports, which had been so long, absolutely hostile to people like us, that makes it, that makes coming out in the world of sports more difficult in a personal way. Like, do you feel like, am I stepping on toes here? Am I doing things that, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough, I don't want to say it's a tough tightrope to walk because that's not necessarily true, but it's one of those things where you're, 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 you think a little more as opposed to, Maybe if you come out and you're in a and you're in a different world than the sports world, considering what sports is and has been, I'm trying to find the best way to put it. I don't know if I did or not. Yeah, no, I'm glad that um, that the way that how sensitively you kind of worked around it because I I think it is something that needs to be approached with sensitivity. Um, I remember um, I think I wrote about this when I I came out in my column on the the ABC website about um, Jason Whitlock, of course, the the um, the US journalist and, and. him and broadcaster where you just sent a um, chill down my spine <laughs> well i mean he he had a, a a great comment when he was talking about you know michael um sand back in the day where he spoke about the fact that you know sports no longer promotes social change it reflects it and I, I thought it was just such a great line that it i mean it very much does it's not a you know once upon a time it was this this avenue particularly with things like the color barrier you know once upon a time that they were able to to move forward and change attitudes in society whereas nowadays and, and especially when it comes to sexuality um and with you know gender and these types of things it is a long way behind the rest of the world i mean it's even nowadays in our football code we've never had an openly gay player in, in aussie rules football and it will be an enormous story when it does eventually happen whereas in everybody's life whether it's a you know a family member someone who they're friends with or whatever it may be they all know people that are gay they've all had experiences with gay people and they all know that the gay people are very different in the way that they go about it the same way that you know people with green eyes are all very different or people with red hair or um you know whatever it may be and that's that's no difference different uh, there's no difference to that in the in the gay world um I, I just I wanted to pick up too on a, a comment that I made um, back in must have been when I came out sort of 2018 2019 I, I did a, a podcast with um, Damian Barrett who's sort of very well renowned um, AFL journalist with on AFL media and I, I had a similar chat about um, you know my sexuality and the, how as you said sort of the, the straight acting and inverted commas and the way that I am and what I was trying to do was essentially explain to people that were like me and I'm sure there's plenty of them in and around the sports industry that you know feel like if, if they want to come out that that's okay too and um yeah that, that they will be accepted but I made a comment at the time about how you know trying to explain what I was like and my personality type and I, I, I said a phrase um essentially saying that you know I'm not the sort of person that would find myself on a float at Mardi Gras and it it came across at the time and it wasn't meant how it was intended so it came across at the time as if you know that's that's not me I don't want to be part of that and uh, this goes to show too Matt that hey we're on a we're all on a steep learning curve with this you know the way that I think and feel about it you know three years ago isn't the same way that I think about it now for example and we're learning so much more about it um and, and I think the one thing that I always need to point out when I talk about my sexuality is is just that that you know gay people are not a monolith we don't all think and feel the same way about every single issue these are very much my experiences but the one thing that horrified me at the time was to think that 
you know, people that were on the floats at Mardi Gras, people that were sort of walking through the streets, um, you know, in a, in a very flamboyant outfit, you know, 30, 40 years ago, getting bashed, um, you know, basically because of their sexuality, that somehow I was disrespecting those people who have basically created this environment for people like me to be exactly who I am in the sports media. Because, you know, going back 30, 40 years, there just wouldn't have been the possibility of that even happening at all. So um, I'm I'm very grateful for, for people that have been before me and, and other gay people in the industry who don't necessarily act the same way that I act or present themselves in the same way that, um, yeah, if, if it wasn't for them, that there wouldn't have been the environment for, for people like probably you and me to, to be sort of more heteronormative, um, but also... Um, obviously, we we are gay, but um, it, it's sort of not as visible, I guess, on the on the outside as it would be for uh, for other people. So, um, yeah, I, I think that that's probably something worth noting in in this discussion as well. I mean, it, it falls in the same line for me. Like, I you're not going to see me tweeting about Drag Race. I just hate reality shows. That's that's a blanket thing. But that's always about me and only about me and what I find what I enjoy and what I find interesting, but for the rest of them and people out there, you like what you like. If you are one of those gay people, it's great. I am glad that many people made great sacrifices and did what they did to ensure that we could live our lives the way we live it now. And we are blessed by them and we are grateful for them. But as I say, like, I'm just, I, that's just not who I am. And you don't have to like, we're all, we're all different. And I, and I, I find that in sports because of that perception and the gay people that, and the queer people that do come out, particularly in men's sports. And I want to, we're going to talk about the AFL thing in a second, because I find it very interesting. These, these common perceptions of what we think athletes are and these common perceptions of what we think people in sports are, and then gay people in other worlds it's when they clash and that I think also plays a role in why you just, you don't see many gay men in sports at this point, this, the social and societal expectations of gay men in sports and gay men in general are very, very different to how they would be in any other line of work and women in sports. And I think it's a very difficult tightrope to walk because these are tough topics. And for many gay people, I completely understand queer people in general, all parts of this rainbow. I completely understand. If you don't like sports and you find sports repulsive, I totally get it. There is nothing I can say that will change your mind and nothing I would want to say to try to change your mind. I get it. And we deal with it every day. But I think for, part, for us, it's, it's part of that, you know, we're, we're part of that growth in the last outpost of the world where our community is not, I don't want to say not in favor because that's not right, but not in public facing roles in the same way they are in politics, in science, in health, no. in, in movies and music everywhere. Sports is the last frontier. And it, that means because sports are behind the times, it's gonna take a lot more growth and a lot more learning and a lot more mistakes until we get to that point. And we, by being ourselves can play a small role in that, but we know how much it's gonna take to get there. And we've already gone through that. And I want to get to some of those Australian specific moments in a second. First thing I want to say to you is the, it's just on coming out experiences. The two part question. The first is, do you have one story of coming out to a family or a, a friend, a family member, or friend that stands out to you in some way that is exemplifies the coming out process for you and what you experienced? 
probably the, the first person I ever told I was gay was my best friend, um, who I'm lucky enough to, to work alongside um, nowadays. But um, yeah, we, we lived together at the time in Perth and we're actually on holiday in, uh, in the US. And I've, I've told this story a, a few times in the past, but um, yeah, I mean, he was, he was a huge part of the reason why I was, I was um, able to come out at the time that I did and, and really start that, that process. He was, he's been a great friend to me for a long time. And we're in, we're in Houston, actually. And uh, uh, we must have been out. I'm trying to think what we did that day. We must have been out and about and um, probably Congratulations, Houston. And- You've accomplished something worthwhile in the world <laughs> of sports, which you never have before and won't since. <laughs> uh, so we went to, we must have been out and about and, and somehow came back. We ended up having an argument in, um, in, our hot- in the hotel room. And then in the end, it, it led to sort of a, a big D&M as, as what often always happens. And eventually got to the point where I, I tried to sort of tell him that I was gay. But um, I think for everyone that has had to have that conversation with people, the, the words are so emotionally charged that to actually even spit the sentence out was one of the hardest things that I had to do. And I think in the end, I'm not even sure I got the chance to say it. I think he might've um, completed the, the sentence for me. Um, but in the end, he actually started crying afterwards. And I was, I was kind of like, it took me back a little bit. And I was kind of like, oh, how come, how come you're crying? Like, why are you so upset? And he basically looked at me and said, look, I can see how much pain that it's caused you and, and how difficult that it's been for you. And it, it upsets me as to how much of a struggle this has been for you. And it was, it was the most beautiful moment and the best possible reaction that you could hope um, from someone that you've told for the first time this this huge thing about yourself that you've kept a secret for for many years and look I'll, I think at that stage I was about 24 and uh, I mean at that like by that stage I mean he knew me so well and um, a lot of my close friends you know were in the same boat my family was in the same boat that I think they all suspected they were just kind of waiting for me um, to say it and then I kind of got to the point that I was I was eventually able to but I, I think if that experience hadn't been as good as um, what it was I think it would have been harder to then go on and, and tell the next person and so on and so forth and I think that's a pretty common thing among you know everybody's experience that if you if you have um, a good experience first up then um, generally that it gets easier the second and third and fourth and fifth people that you tell if um, yeah if if you get off on a, the right foot so um, yeah I, I I couldn't be more grateful to him uh, for the for the friendship and um, for the way that he he handled that. It was um, yeah, it was a it was a really big moment in in, uh, in my life in in retrospect. And it happened in Houston, Texas. Congrats, Houston! You've done something good for the world. Never happened before. <laughs> anyway, uh, I I, I want to I, I always like these stories because they are indicative of how emotionally wrought you are beforehand and how if you try to script a coming out and if you're listening to this in your closet and you're trying to script a coming out to somebody say this is how i'm going to do it how i'm going to say it when it's going to happen you're going to fail at that it never works don't do it you know in your heart (laughs) of hearts when the moment's right i've been telling this to people and it's one of those things that's really hard to say I, i i just say like don't script it because i tried to script it in my life and it went badly like you'd go on 30 minute rambling conversations before you'd even get to the point. And you're just like, and you look like yourself, like you're an idiot. Like what the hell was I wasting that 30 minutes for? It's hard to say these things to your friends because even if you know, they're going to accept you, you know, that the view that they have of you changes irreparably from one moment to the next. And that's a really hard thing to go and know you have to do, even if the view is changing for the better. The person they thought they knew is not the person they actually knew. I, I think that's something that is so hard to explain to people that don't have to do this. It's a feeling that many people will never experience in their lives. And the next part of this question I want to ask is, 
What compelled you? Was there a moment or was it just saying, I feel comfortable with friends and family, everyone behind the scenes knows to write the story you wrote and come out publicly? Uh, it was something I always wanted to do. So like I said, I'd sort of been in the media since I was 19. I knew that there wasn't a whole lot of representation in it. Um, and so really from that point, I I probably thought about that, to be honest, before I'd thought about um, telling people close to me. Um, yeah, it was it was always something that I felt like, look, at some point I'll get the chance to do this. And um, yeah, but basically, because, and as I sort of said in the, the column when I wrote it, that I I felt like it would have helped my self-esteem a lot that if I was... You know, 13 or 14 and wanting to get into the industry that you knew that there was kind of people out there that um, were, were like you and you you didn't think that, oh, look, I have to go into these other professions where there's sort of gay people, there's the opportunity to to still work in sports or to, to do something like that. So it was always sort of planted somewhere in the back of my mind, but I, I knew there was a bit of uh, water that had to go under the bridge and a few things to work through before we got to that point. And a huge part of it was I, want, I wanted to kind of establish myself in the industry a little bit more. I think if I'd written that when I was... 19 and no one knew who I was and I was very much sort of just a fringe member of the media then it wouldn't have resonated the same way if it was if uh, as you know when I did it in 2018 not that I'm a, a huge figure in the Australian media anyway but at least you kind of have a, a few more sort of runs on the board and um, yeah your name's probably a little bit more out there that it can have a greater impact than yeah perhaps if it was it was a 19 year old coming through and the other thing is I was I mean, as a, as a, from a professional standpoint I, I didn't want to be oh this is the guy that's the gay dude in the media um, and so as a result, he's on this magic carpet ride and, and that's how he's sort of getting his start in the media. I wanted to prove that actually I can do the job and this is what I can bring to the table before I, I revealed that part of myself. Um, I, I told my best mate when I was 24 and probably over the next three years, I'd had the opportunity to tell various people close to me. Um, you talk about sort of not scripting it. I mean, I, I went to so many dinners and catch-ups and drinks with friends and you'd, you'd eventually get someone alone one-on-one and you'd go, right, this is my time. I'm going to tell them that this part of myself and let them know that I'm gay. And sure enough, like it never, ever pans out that way. And you think, oh, I'm not, like we're sitting here just having a nice casual conversation about the footy on the weekend or whatever it may be. And to think, like it's, it's just such an awkward detour in conversation to say, all oh, right, now I'm going to bring it up. And I'm, by the way, I happen to be gay. And it's, it's, it never really feels like the right moment and as you say every now and then you, you just get a wave over you where you think you know what this is the time now I'm going to say it so even the people that I told I, I didn't necessarily tell people in order I, I told my best mate first and then I've, I've got another bunch of people that are really close to me but um, it's not like I told the, the person I was closest to first and then the second and third and fourth in that particular order it just basically came out when the moment presented itself so um, yeah, and then even to the point where it, it got to the stage that eventually I was ready to write this article and I, I told sort of a dozen people over the, the three years that preceded that. The other thing is too, Matt, I was, I was living on the other side of the country at that particular stage. So it was the sort of thing that you didn't want to have to tell people over the phone. So uh, whenever I got back to Perth, it felt like I was kind of doing the rounds, trying to quickly tell as many people as I could, knowing that, hey, at some point I, I want to have this public. But even once we got to that point, it was it was it was it felt like it was time just to hurry up and get this this thing out there and um and and reveal that part of myself. And so, the, the night before I published it, I, I quickly rang around and ran a uh, rang around uh, sort of this a bunch of people that are, are very very close to me and and essentially told them over the phone that hey, this is what I'm doing tomorrow and this is this is coming out and and ultimately had to have that conversation over the phone anyway. But I think that's the hard part as much as anything it, it, with me. It wasn't really so much that people didn't understand or they didn't accept me for it, but it was kind of like, hey, man, I thought I thought we were closer than that. Did you not think that you could tell me as if somehow it was a bad reflection on them that they weren't going to take it well? And it, it wasn't that at all. It was just 
circumstance and they'd never really felt like a, a great moment to, to bring it up. And I think if I look back and said, look, if I could do one thing differently, um, it'd probably be to have a few more of those conversations one-on-one and, and sort of make that a higher priority than what it was before eventually it's, uh, it came out publicly. There were some people in my life that I probably should have told before I did what I did, which if you haven't seen the profile of my, my Twitter profile, you know I came out on my birthday. And I said I'm going to do this after a couple of things happened, but I only came out to like six or seven people privately. And the first person I came out to was a friend of mine who was an actor who played a bisexual person on television. So again, it does these things are not linear. And these things are going to be different for every single coming out experience. There is not one path. And mine was very weird. And, and I completely understand that. Like I, I told my sister over Skype that went well. Um, it was, you know, it's one of those things where you just, it never works the way you anticipate it. And it's a, it's a process that's winding and it's weird. And there's never a good way to do it. You just have to do it when you feel the moment's right. And only you can determine that. And the last part of this, before we get to the talk about Australian sport and footy and all of that is I always like asking this question because it, it sells a lot about just how much people underestimate how important their own coming out is. And I've, I've said that to people before because I think it's important to people in their own way. But if you tell it publicly, even if you have a very tiny platform, somebody's going to see it. Like I saw yours two weeks before I did mine and look where we are now. Did you hear from anybody right after you came out when you went, I cannot believe that person just said congratulations to me. How on earth did that happen? Uh, yeah, that's a, it's a, I heard from so many. I was very lucky that I heard from so many people. And it, like you said, it, it's such an overwhelming uh, thing to go through. And I had no appreciation for that at all. My, my best mate who I mentioned, I, the first person I told in Houston, he, um, such a beautiful dude, he offered to, to fly over from Perth to meet me in Sydney because I was, I was living in, in Sydney at that particular stage and said, mate, why don't I fly over and we'll spend the day together. The article will go up in the morning. You can put your phone in the drawer and we can basically go hang out and have a few beers. And I remember saying to him, nah, man, I was like, don't worry about it. Like I told you three years ago now, like we're all sweet. Like basically there won't be, won't be a problem at all. And I remember getting up and sort of going for a run first thing in the morning. And sure enough, the article went up and I, I came home and tried to play some PlayStation and my phone kept going off. And then um, it, it was, it was a great day. I mean, you got so many good messages, but it was, it was very overwhelming. I didn't think that it would hit me the way that it did. So um, yeah, I, I got some some really great sort of messages in my inbox. That there was, it's not sort of too many that that stand out, to be honest, among anyone else. I, I'm extremely appreciative of, of everyone that hit me up. Um, that the ABC has a has a large platform, so when that story went up, I, I sort of had a quick skim through the comments. But uh, as you can imagine, on a day like that, I, I wasn't sort of digging too deep. So I apologise if if someone messaged me and I, I didn't get the chance to to get back to them. But I I really appreciate the, the sentiment. Um, I guess one way to kind of describe that um, experience too as well, Matt, is there's a, a guy that I used to work with and um, he sort of worked for us as a, as a casual at the ABC and he's a sort of well-known media figure down here, a guy named Tom Wilson, who I used to call the footy with and he was living in Sydney at the time. We were, uh, we are sort of good mates. And I remember telling him privately a few weeks before I came out and just said, look, mate, this is what I'm going to do. This is who I am. And we're in a, in a hotel room in Canberra about to call a game of footy and um he was awesome about it like had a had a sort of great response and um yeah it, we sort of get on really well and a couple of weeks later so he was in sydney and he's like look let's catch up that night and, and have a beer and i thought oh this would be good so we sure enough we went out 
um, and it'd been a big day. My, my phone had been blowing up and um, everyone sort of wanted to, um, to, to get in touch and have a chat about it. Uh, and I, I would, I would have been horrendous company. It would have been the worst, worst, worst dinner ever if I was him. Where basically I sat there the whole time trying not to look at my phone and then constantly trying to put it on silent and see who was messaging and what was happening. And um, yeah, I was, I was in no state to, to actually sit there and, and hold a conversation and be, be a good dinner guest. So um, I apologise to, to Tom for that experience. It was, it was probably, um, it was much more overwhelming than what I thought it would be, to be honest. And, and in retrospect, I'd. I probably should have taken Ben up on his offer and uh, and had him come over and be able to, to sort of spend it with people close, um, really close to me that day because it was, um, yeah, it, it was a big deal. And I think it's something that you, uh, I, I probably shouldn't have, have underestimated as much as what I did. No, you should never underestimate it because you can't possibly overestimate how important it's going to be. I, I tell this to anybody who has any sort of platform. If you're going to come out, your story is going to be important to somebody. I heard from a previous podcast guest, Chris Moser, when I, when I came out and I was just like, how on earth did that happen? That made no sense. Like where on earth did that come from? And I tell people that because you do underestimate how important your own coming out is. And the other piece of advice I will give you is on the day when, if you're doing something like we did, where we're posting it publicly, turn your phone off. It's going to buzz constantly and you're going to feel the need to look at it and you shouldn't. <laughs> this is a day where you are free to do whatever the hell you want. I just watched silly videos on the internet for six hours and it was great. You don't have to think about anything. And it's, it's awesome. That's the way you should do it. That's the, and I don't tell anybody that your coming out process has to be this, 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 and this, but that's the only thing I will highly recommend you do. Post the story, post it on Instagram, Twitter, wherever, turn your phone off and don't turn it on for like another 12 hours or another day catch up on it later. Enjoy your life. You don't have to think about it. And uh, I did that. It was great. It's, it was a great decision. Although, again, I got a call from my cousin who I didn't come out to publicly because he had called my sister. And that was one of those like, okay, who he saw it on Twitter and Facebook. And I was just like, okay, fine, whatever. But anyway, that's, that's how this, that's how coming out can work in sports media. If you have even somewhat of a platform and I have none, you had somewhat of a platform. Now let's shift gears and talk about the sports themselves that you cover. And I want to talk about footy because I've said this to Jason Ball a year and a half ago, and I'll say it again. It's a bunch of hot dudes, largely hot dudes, running around in tank tops and short shorts. What the hell am I saying no to that for? But as you say, there are none in the AFL. And I've actually seen a couple of stories in recent years, some of them, oddly enough, after Carl Nassib coming out, saying, why doesn't the AFL have this? And I just read another story that you were quoted, and I can't remember what publication it was in, but it was a week or two ago. And it was the same story. Why are there nobody out in the AFL for men? There are for women. And you know that sport well better than I will ever know it. And I enjoy it, but I will never comprehend it in the way that you will or many others will. And it's been a slow burn in all the North American sports. Obviously, it's been a very slow burn in the NFL. Why do you think it's been particularly slow with that sport because it wasn't obviously Gareth Thomas is not Australian, but he came out many, many years ago in rugby. You have an Australian soccer player, Josh Cavallo, who just came out in October and multiple made name Australian athletes, Ian Thorpe, Matthew Mitchum, they came out well before any of this that we've seen recently. Is it anything specific with footy because it is the dominant football in some ways? Or is it just, or is it just one of those things of it's happenstance? Like 
this is just how it works with this sport. Yeah, I think it's culture. I think it's the way it's always been. So it's. So um, you would say it's yeah. the most. You'd say it's. It would basically be how I describe hockey, which is it is the toughest, most masculine, most insular, the most places where you hear the demeaning language. Like even the NFL doesn't really have it as much as some of the other sports do. Like the yeah. culture is the most oppressive compared to the others. Yeah, I, I think and I think that exists as much with the fans as it does anyone else. Like I, I actually think the, the I mean the locker room is a highly sexualized place. I mean let's be honest that athletes among themselves are talking about what they're doing in the bedroom with one another way more than any other workplace anywhere. So it's I know in the media landscape I'm not talking to my colleagues about that. I know people that you know, working in hospitals as nurses or whether you work in a bank or whatever it may be, that those conversations aren't being had the same way that they're being had in a locker room. So I'm sure there are gay players. I'm sure that there are athletes that understand it. But I think a huge part of the drawback is the way that things, one, are reported. So the role of, of us as the media. And then the knock-on effect from that is the response from the fans and the language that you hear over the fence and, and in the concourse every weekend. So um, I think that that's a huge part of it and that the fact that we haven't had a player. So I think that attitudes can change quickly on, on that as well. Um, I mean, even if you, you look in us sport, for example, like in um, American football, once you have an example of it and I remember Marcellus Wiley, who's uh, obviously a former NFL player, who is uh, a, a radio. You've got some interesting examples you're picking here. You're getting yeah, what about Marcellus Wiley, man. I used to, well, I used to listen to Marcellus' show all the time when I was uh, in Perth and it sort of lined up pretty well. He was doing a, a drive show in, in LA at the time, but he always had a phrase that was, yeah, nothing's a big deal when it's a real deal. And essentially what that means is, yeah, once you see something, you go, oh yeah, that, that seems like this great, you know, how could we possibly have gay players in AFL football, for example? But when it, when it happens and it's, and it's real, it, it's not a big deal anymore. It's kind of like, oh yeah, here it is and, and so on and so forth. So you see Michael Sam play or you watch, you know, Carl Massive and you think, gee, we can't have a gay player because that would undercut, you know, the masculinity of football. Well, you know, watch those guys play and they ain't undercutting anyone's masculinity in the way that they go about it. So I think that once we finally have some gay players come through, that that, that attitude will change pretty quick. And I think what we need more than anything, and unfortunately in, in Josh's case, and that's a fascinating case study, is that, you know, he's one at the moment and there's there's no one else that sort of followed that. Um, and that's what we don't really need that in Australian rules football. And I understand that the intense media focus that's going to be on him. I mean, Josh plays a sport that is a global sport. And so he's, he's attracted attention from all around the world. And yet in Australia, it would be a 10 times bigger story if it's an AFL player as opposed to being an A-League player, even though it's not going to ring bells around the world in the same way. So I understand why the one out doesn't want to do that um, and essentially have all that kind of focus on them. So I think that's part of it. There was a proposal that was actually put forward years ago. And I remember hearing whispers around the corridors from the Players Association about the possibility of five, six, seven players actually coming out together as a group and essentially saying, hey, we're all, we all happen to be gay. And I think something like that would, would really work because instead of then having this intense focus on one individual sort of carrying the can as the gay player, it would be oh, all of a sudden there's a bunch of gay players across the league, more and more of them will come out and it's not a big deal anymore. The other aspect of all of this as well, Matt, is you know if you look at an AFL player, I mean, our guys get drafted so young. So, so many of them you know, come out as, uh, or get drafted as 18 year olds. So they're in the system. Um, and you know the average AFL careers is something about three years. 
So if you think about what percentage of players actually even make it to a point, so you've got to be an amazing athlete to get to that point. You've got to have essentially your whole focus on Australian rules football to be at that level at such an early age. And then you also have to have your head around your sexuality to a point that not only you're comfortable to come out privately, but also you're comfortable enough to come out publicly, which is a which is an enormous step. I, I like to think of you know, myself as someone who works in the media industry is that um, you know, I have my finger on the pulse on, you know, not just what's happening in sport, but hopefully a few social issues more broader than that. And it took me until I was you know, 27 or something to finally get to a point where I was, I was comfortable enough and felt like I could, I could articulate this publicly and whatever someone had to say to me online that it was, it was going to be water off the duck's back, essentially. I, I knew enough about myself that I'd, I'd sort of done that work, but I also wasn't playing professional sport at the same time. So to think that someone's able to get all those things together by, this, by the time that they're 27 and still happen to be in the league or whatever it may be and make that decision publicly and then have it be, you know, it'll be 150 times more um, scrutiny and focus on him than there ever was on someone like me in my situation. I, I feel that, you know, by the time that the guys are actually in a position to process that in the environment that they're put in, um, a lot of them are already in and out of the system by the time that that's even happens. The percentages get much smaller and smaller of the guys that are, are even in their mid-20s still in the system. So I actually think the more likely scenario, I think we'll see this a lot, whether it's in US sport or whether it's in Australian sport or whatever it may be, that essentially guys will just be, uh, I mean, the, the kids nowadays are, are so good with all this sort of stuff. The, the language that they're using in the schoolyard is not the language that, that we were using, for example, um, it, it may, we, uh, we have sort of got to a point that I, I think kids nowadays are, uh, are encouraged to be themselves and to express themselves. And so I'm, I have no doubt that we'll get to a point over the next 10 years or whatever, where there'll be guys that will just be drafted and they're gay and there's no drama with that and their mates don't have an issue with it. And they have been gay from you know the, the time that they were 13 or 14 and realised that that's what they were into. And they went through the whole high school period. They were encouraged to be part of sporting teams. Um, they didn't feel ostracized the same way that perhaps people did sort of 10, 20 years ago or, or even when we were growing up um, and, and they'll just be gay and they'll get drafted and, and that's where the change will come from rather than the guys, I guess, that are professionals nowadays sort of happening to make a huge decision to, to come out. I think that they'll just be essentially drafted with that being um, uh, on the back of their baseball card. That, that'll be part of who they are. So um, I think that that's probably the, the greatest hope for, um, you know, this change in, in sexuality and sport. I think that some of it might be like that. But then I also think because some of the recent ones just happened because these people have decided, whether it be Josh, whether it be Carl, or whether it be anybody, that they just don't care anymore and they have to do it for their own good. Those kind of personalities do exist. I, I've said it on this show. The fact that it happened in hockey means it can happen anywhere because hockey is... I'm not sure I could compare it to AFL because I'm not as knee deep into that sport as I am into hockey. The fact that it happened in hockey proved to me it could probably happen anywhere, but it takes a specific kind of personality and a specific kind of person to want to do that. Knowing all the scrutiny is going to come and knowing that there's going to be something you have to overcome in order to do it. The culture of the sport you know, the barriers that exist in your own head. But there are people out there that just don't care and are going to do it regardless. I don't know if those personalities are very much present in AFL. I don't know if they're present in other sports, but I know that they're out there because I've seen it happen 
And to me, I think that that's where it's going to come. It's just somebody who's just going to say, no, I'm doing it. I don't care what happens. The rest of it is, you know, the rest of it's gravy. Like they'll get, you know, internet trolls will say what they say. And what will end up happening is people will rush to defend the person that's come out from those internet trolls because they'll use that as a moment to prove their bona fides to say, we are this forward-thinking, open-minded organization. We accept everyone. We want this to happen. And yet, as much as these organizations want to say it, I'm not sure they're actually prepared for what they need to do if it happens. Like, it was a surprise to me when, you know, some of these players came out and these leagues, these teams acted exactly the way you would want them to. I was convinced somebody was going to screw it up. And my hope is for all of these organizations in Australia, anywhere, that they're ready for the day when it happens. Don't be wanting it to happen without having the infrastructure in place to be ready when it does. Because when it does, you need to be on your A game to make sure it doesn't go wrong. Because if it goes wrong, you open up a whole other set of problems that you don't want to open up. And I want to touch quickly on the idea that you could get multiple players coming out at once. To find multiple players, even if I believe there are multiple players that are in every sport right now that are gay and we just don't know about it, and AFL included, I can't imagine being able to line all that up at once and get five, six, seven people to come out at the same time. Knowing how difficult the coming, coming out process is for one person, doing it seven times, syncing it up, that seems basically impossible to me. If they could pull it off, it would be one of the greatest accomplishments I've ever seen. Sure. I mean, statistically, uh, it would be, be unusual if there wasn't that many players in the league um, all at one stage. I mean, there should be much more than that. I mean, if you look at the, the percentages of the population. So, uh, and I know the usual arguments on this. Yeah, but, you know, people that are gay, for example, would be steered into other areas and not necessarily into sport. But you think about what sport is as a, um, you know, and the way that we select out for height, for athleticism, for speed for endurance you know we have all these factors that basically we rule out so many types and then what we're also going to rule out just the gay players and just the like just keep the straight players for example in the in the league at the one time it just feels like it would be too much of a statistical anomaly to get to that point where you just go oh look there's there's just not that many gay players in the league um so i mean yeah you, you would need to have all of them sort of feeling and thinking around the same same way at a particular time so i, I get that that would be um that would be logistically a big challenge. I mean, this that, that hadn't been this hasn't been mooted for a long time. So I might even be going back a decade now since that was sort of first um, raised privately. But yeah, I, I think that that would basically be, that would that would help, wouldn't it? Like if you're an individual as opposed to rather than going one person through it, if you had multiple people going through it at the same time. The thing with Cavallo, I guess, that disappointed me down here, and I you know I hate saying this because it sounds patronising, but I, I mean it in the most sincere sense of, the, sense of the, the term. I mean, I was so proud of him and the way that he went about it. And and I, I had so much admiration for him. And I looked at him and I thought, you know, I wish that I was that comfortable in my own skin when I was 21 and the way that that he was he handled that moment and everything that came with it. He did every media interview. I was um, fortunate enough to chat with him in the aftermath um, of, of coming out as well. And I can only imagine um, what that experience has, has been like in the, the days and, and weeks since. But... I mean, first, first of all, I was disappointed that the AFL players didn't take that as an opportunity to come out and uh, publicly support Josh at that particular stage. So we saw a couple of the AFL teams on Twitter, sort of some you know, seven, eight hours after the event, eventually say, you know, well done to Josh Cavallo. But 
I would have loved to see, you know, the senior players in the game and particularly the head of the Players Association come forward and say, hey, good on Josh Cavallo. That's awesome that he feels like he can be himself in the A-League. Um, you know, if, if there's gay players in our league, I hope that they feel like that this is a welcoming environment for them. But, you know, none of them took that opportunity to essentially do that on their own platforms or in, you know, media conferences that followed, which I think, again, misses the point that it's, it's not actually about congratulating Josh as much as it is. It's really you're, you're giving a nod to everybody else in your league that things are changing and that it is okay for them to be who they are in the competition because you, you have very different demographics than the broader population. You don't have any gay players. Um, and, and it's sort of something that I, I don't think is a really high priority for them at the moment. And the visibility still isn't there. So you talk about, you know, sports teams being ready for it. It's those kind of moments that I think they miss along the way in, uh, in actually being able to You're um, 100% to, to right. Because when, when you mention that, I'm going, they are not prepared for if it happens on their own. Because in a situation like that, I think about the NHL and I think about when Luke Prokop came out and I was lucky to be privy to some of what was happening behind the scenes. And it was highly choreographed. Every step, every interview was done meticulously and everything was planned to the last detail. And you could tell when it happened because all the teams and the players, they would talk and they said things publicly and they said things privately. It was impressive. I was shocked a league that has so many issues with culture, like the NHL did, was able to get that as right as they got it. And to me, like, that's when I'm saying, like, if it's not a priority, it will show. And this is what I'd say to these leagues. You need to be ready for when it happens, because when it happens, we can see you're not ready. And in the case of the AFL, I think you can tell, right? Like, and yeah. that's one of those things. And then when the NFL, when it happened, I don't know anything about what happened with Carl, but they dealt with it as if they were prepared in case it did. And to me, if you want these people to feel safe and to feel welcome in this environment, you have to do the legwork behind the scenes to make them feel ready. No amount of doing pride nights or as the AFL has a pride game, no amount of that or saying, you know, we would be ready in news stories is going to make you actually ready. And I think that it's on every single league to be ready by listening to the people who know what this is about and know what is going through the heads of these athletes. You listen to them and you say, these are the policies you need to put in place. This is what you need to do if and when this happens. Because when it does, it's a great moment, but it can be spoiled if you're not ready. And these athletes who are doing this, taking this huge step, they need your sympathy and they need your support and saying things ain't going to be doing it enough. No, no. And I think these, look, these are all different issues, but they're all the same in the sense that, you know, whether it's um, to do with, you know, players of different backgrounds, different religions, sexuality, uh, race, you know, whatever it may be. And unfortunately for sports leagues, it feels like they've been, they've fallen behind as the games have become more professional. I think part of that is because, that the teams and the organizations are essentially a license to print money. They put on these major events and it's almost like steering the Titanic. It's like, look, just as long as we don't hit an iceberg, just keep the ship going straight as much as you possibly can. And so it's like, we don't want to be sort of too conscious of any of these outside noise because we don't want to upset people on the right or people on the left. We just want everybody's money as much as we can sort of attract everybody and get them all into one place as much as we possibly can. So it feels like as we're coming out of that particular stage and athletes are an extension of that, 
they don't want to say anything that upsets anyone. It's like the, the famous Michael Jordan line about, you know, Republicans buy basketball. You don't need well. to remind me of that. It's, it's, essentially, it's, it's all about, you know, how do, how do we maximise uh, as, as much sort of money as we can out of what we do? And so I think that athletes have sort of been, have been happy to take a back seat a little bit when it comes to social change because they don't want to affect their bottom line. But I feel like we're moving into a stage now that, and guys like Josh Cabello are going to show this, there's also going to be enormous economic benefit and clout for, for athletes that do I've come said forward this and their mind. I've said this repeatedly. Look at the endorsement money you're going to get from yep. not just companies, but as I said before, and I've said this, like, and it's different for women's sports because women's sports are an entirely different issue when we're talking about one sport here. Uh, but I've said this before. Gay men, and I'm singling out gay men, are largely people who don't have kids and in many cases, at least in this country, have a good amount of disposable income. So if you have disposable income and you don't have kids, you could spend your money on stuff. And if they think sports aren't a reflecting environment for them where they feel comfortable and they want to be associated with it, then they ain't going to spend your money there. And you're just throwing all that money into the trash because you're not willing to put in the effort. Why would you do that if you're in the business of making money? And again, oh, that is deeply cynical, but it's true. But I think... But I also think these they're going to fall behind as organizations because society has moved and they haven't moved with it. And so we're seeing that reflected in sport that uh, I don't know what it's like over there. Oh, well, I, I do in, in a way. Do. I mean, we've had do. incidents with certain owners and um, other stuff when it comes to sort of racial issues. And we've had the same thing here with, um, you know, people in, in high positions, presidents of footy clubs, um, that essentially if, if you say something that is, you know, out of step, with societal expectations in 2022, um, you are going to be in, in trouble for it. And society has kind of moved and these sports leagues haven't really been in tune with it. And so I think they're going to find themselves in a lot of problems. And the ones that are just quicker are going to be the successful businesses and organizations. And that essentially is what we're saying, what, what sport is nowadays. And the ones that still try and run it like it's, you know, the, the early noughties and the, the late nineties and, and keep sort of just plowing forward, only worried about whatever they're doing. Um, I think they're going to find out pretty quick that, you know, society's changed while they've been stuck in their sports bubble um, and it's going to cost them financially, which is really the, the main thing that they're aware of because they're, they're not in tune with, with what's happening more broadly. So I want to get into a couple of things before we start to wrap this up. The first thing I want to get into with you is there have been some controversies in Australian sport. I think there was something in cricket related to this. You, I, maybe I'm off. I know there was one in rugby where a rugby player said some, hysterically homophobic things and it was a major controversy in Australia. I don't remember his name and even if I did I wouldn't want to say it so how do you as a gay member of the sports media and you're inevitably asked about it how do you talk about it in a way that reflects accurately what you're feeling and what we are feeling the royal we but talking to an audience that is not going to come from the position that we do of not just <laughs> have empathy but the understanding of it because as I said, if something like that happened in the AFL, you'd be the first person people would ask. And I'm sure you'd give a very respectable answer, but you'd want to do more than just say, this is the bog standard answer I have to give you in this situation. You'd like there to be something more than just condemning this, whatever happens. So how do you react to such things F and when they occur? It's a great question. I mean, I work for a, a mainstream organization i think there's there was a statistic produced recently that something like the abc as an organization reaches 87 percent of people a week 
on some kind of platform, which is phenomenal. So to think that all by 13% of Australians are accessing the the ABC in some kind of way, whether it's on print, television, radio, whatever it may be um, at some stage during the week. So you are speaking, you know, by and large to very much a a mainstream audience. And so I try and sort of keep that in mind when um, I speak on these issues. But as you know, when it is, when you are part of minority, a lot of the time, uh, you you feel a great sense of responsibility to be the voice for the voiceless, to kind of speak uh, and defend them on issues when they feel like that um, they're being misrepresented or that they've been wronged publicly. And I find that balance really hard because I feel like whatever I say on it, um, a lot of the time, the, the negative feedback that I'm going to get is you know, almost 100% of the time, people from the same community in which I'm in. It's, you didn't do enough. You didn't say enough. Why weren't you stronger on this? And we are very hard at sort of holding each other to account. Whereas I like to sort of focus as much as I can on um, the, the peoples whose hearts and minds we're trying to change. So all of us over here on one side, I think sort of we're by and large together. We obviously we have, you know, we're not a monolith. We do have sort of different thoughts and, and opinions on things, but we're, we're all very much sort of pulling in the same direction. Um, we just have different ways of going about it. Whereas what we need to do, and it, we're not going to be able to, to make change just as the small minority as the, the 10%. Essentially, unless you're able to bring everyone with you and explain to those people um, where you're coming from, what they can do to make it better, I, I don't necessarily think that we're, we're going to make ground at a pace in which we want to. So um, I, I try and sort of target a lot of it um, to, to people like that. Um, I'll, I'll, pretty much all my friends, I don't have too many gay friends at all. So all my friends are, are pretty much... Um, straight, a lot of straight men as part of that. So um, I, I use a lot of them as my sounding board when I'm trying to explain issues to them. Where do I find the parts that you know that they're struggling with, um, the parts that they don't quite understand, and and then really try and tap into that when I'm presenting things, um, you know, publicly to to essentially say, look, these are um, the things that we need to focus on, and, and this is the the part that people may be struggling with. But I, I find it a a, a very difficult balance and as I probably touched on earlier in the pod Matt that you know that there's there's parts too that you you don't want to offend the group in which you're there essentially in a pseudo way sort of speaking on behalf of and, and I never feel like I'm speaking on behalf of every single gay person but um, it feels like they're always the ones that I say something that is insensitive towards whether it may be the thing about the float on Mardi Gras or I've spoken past about the differences between men's sport and women's sport and I I, I don't I don't do that to, and and I, and and I understand as well that there are stereotypes attached to both men's and women's sport that are extremely damaging for for parents out there. Um, you know, for women's sport the same way there is for men's sport. So I, I do my very best to, um, to to try and hold all those positions concurrently as well. Uh, but I, I feel like if we if you completely ostracize the ninety percent of people who's whose hearts and minds you're trying to change, then um, it, it's going to be a, a really, really tough thing to try and bring everyone along together. It, you, you're really sort of shouting into a uh, into an echo chamber and I'm, I'm not sure that that sort of helps us move the needle um, overall. There's already enough shouting in echo chambers right now in the world. I don't think we need more of that. I also find it interesting because in Australia, as some of you know, there was a large postal vote to decide on the legality of gay marriage and that was five years ago. And can you imagine what that would have been like in this country? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's yep. these things are these things like I, I can't even imagine. And we are having these discussions again all the time. And in sports, it is a different discussion because you're speaking with people whose lives might not be directly affected by this. And they may have used 
the language all the time and they don't see why it's wrong because they have never had a reason to think that it was wrong. And you have to be diplomatic because if you talk down to them and you're too strong on them, then you're going to turn them off and you have to find that balance. And it's hard because we are the ones who are in the world of the straight people. And it's that balancing act that we have to, we have to toe the line a little bit. And uh, it, it's tricky. And I also should mention, just in the case of balance, it's not just that there are no gay players in the AFL. There aren't any gay players in cricket either. So, I mean, you know, and I think, and, and cricket is a wildly different sport as much as I completely don't understand it. So it is not just AFL. It's not just, you know, one sport. There are multiple sports that have this, these issues. And just quickly, I, I guess, like, how, like, do you find it that the problems are different yet the same in cricket? Because again, uh, it is a very, very different sport to the AFL. Yeah, big time. Um, yeah, cricket is is multifaceted. It's a uh, we, we could do a whole sort of part of. Yeah, we don't have time. It's, it's eleven fifteen yeah. right in the United States. I can't do that right now. <laughs> but there's, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, that it's the, particularly from an Australian point of view. Yes, it is more of a global sport than. Aussie rules is so Aussie rules is very much sort of I think uh, largely got to do with the culture that exists in this country um, cricket is you know is, is layered 10 times over it's you know the meeting of the the eastern and the western worlds and um, there, there are whole sort of deep-rooted cultural backstories to all of that as well which um, which I think play into the the cricket world that that perhaps doesn't exist in, in Aussie rules but um, yeah I, I think the um, I think that certainly from an Australian point point of view, there's there's a lot of overlap. It is it is a fascinating discussion to see how even again as we transcend international borders and giant bodies of water, the topics we have in North America are not very different than the topics we have even on the other side of the continent, on the other side of the globe, on the other side of the equator. These are things that happen, and they're largely the same. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. So again, we could have this discussion forever, but. As I said, it's 11.15 at night of the East Coast, and I am very tired. This is not an offense to you. This is a, everything that I, you, know, you do on a daily basis in this world. So your, your big takeaway, you've been out now for four years, nearly. You're still working in sports. You're more successful than ever before. What have you learned through all of this? And what lessons do you want to impart on those, not just in sports media and not just in sports, but in general, of your experiences and how you could translate that into the wider world, the world that is changing and the world that will feature more of us in the future, presumably. Mm. I guess I'd, I just want to pay tribute, I guess, probably more so to the people that um, are in my circle and around me that have kind of made this experience what it is for me. I mean, I was, I was very lucky with, I think, the way that they handled a lot of it that, um, that, that helped me out. So particularly, also not even just for, for gay people that are listening to this podcast, but for, for straight people about, you know, their reactions and the way that they speak in private and who they're around and the way that they, um, they conduct themselves, that, that all of that matters. Um, and it's, it's, it is really important. And, um, and really my life has, has changed very little in a way, which is, um, is a great thing because I, I didn't really want it to before I came out and I, um, and it hasn't really thereafter. I mean, I'm, I'm much happier. I feel much freer. Um, a great sense of relief. I, I probably sort of had a whole lot of sort of pent up um, uh, sort of frustration in me beforehand that I didn't really recognize, but certainly people around me did. Um, so I, I'm definitely happier for the fact that um, I was able to come out, I guess, for, for other gay people that are out there is that you know, there are people 
Uh, I know there's this great fear that sort of everyone's going to out you. I, I don't think that that exists. And particularly for other gay people out there, they get it. Um, as you touched on earlier, you know, your experience is your own in coming out. And I think other gay people are certainly not going to try and ruin that for you or to, to try and encourage you to do something at a pace in which you're not ready. So there, there are plenty of people out there that if you feel like you need to share your story, then you should absolutely, um, I absolutely encourage you to do that. And even if you did it in private to begin with and stepped through it at your own pace, it took me three years from the moment I told the first person to when I told the entire world, it doesn't have to be sort of a, a fast process from, from one to the next. So um, I guess that's probably the, the, as a sort of incoherent sort of rambling sort of uh, conclusion for you, Matt, I guess that's, that's probably the, the message that I guess I would, I'd like to get across. Incoherent afternoon ramblings in Australia are just about the same as incoherent middle of the night ramblings in the East Coast of the United States, for what that's worth. Uh, where can everybody find you on uh, the social media world? Uh, Matt Corbin Middlemass on every sort of platform. So C-O-R-B-I-N-M-I-D-D-L-E-M-A-S on, uh, on, the, on the, do we say the big four on Twitter, Facebook, all of them, TikTok, it's all, it's all go. Well, I'm not on TikTok because uh, I am old even though I'm only 28, I am on the bird app. You know, I mean, Hey, you, you can be where you want. I'm just not doing much on Facebook anymore. Cause I got sick of the Russian bots. Aren't, don't we all, uh, thanks you Ken Corbin. We could have done hours with this and maybe we will in the future on a Patreon episode of the Patreon. I haven't created yet, but it's been great to talk to you and it's been well worth the wait to get to do this show. I'm so happy we got to do it. Thanks again. Sounds good, Matt. I, um, I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's great to see you doing something like this. And I'm sure there's, there's plenty of people out there that will get something out of it. So, um, yeah, thanks again for having me.